Well, again, welcome this morning. So glad you're, you're here with us. I'm, I'm Nathan, one of the pastors. It's uh, great, as always, to, to be together as we continue this uh, series. Uh, and I got to tell you, with the, with the cold weather and, you know, the, the pumpkin donut hole, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm a sucker for those. I mean, I, I kind of, at this point, I, I give my right arm for another donut and a cup of coffee. Uh, I mean, anybody else with me, right? As we kind of settle into this time together. I mean, we say stuff like that, right? Obviously, it's an exaggeration. Uh, but just think about that for a moment. What would you give your right arm for? It's probably a fairly short list, isn't it? I, I mean, have you, are you familiar with the guy Aaron uh, Ralston? The movie 127 Hours is about him. Are you familiar with his story at all? Uh, he is the guy who went hiking by himself a few, a few years back in Utah in a very remote place fell, got stuck literally between a rock and a hard place, and after 127 hours of absolute isolation and deprivation, took out his dull pocket knife and cut his own arm off and hiked out. Saved his life. It's it's an amazing story, isn't it? And and while I'm not convinced that I would have those kinds of guts, right, that strength, I think at least theoretically I'd say, yeah, I'd I would give my right arm to save my life, right? Anybody else? Yeah, of course. But what about, what about sin? I mean, would you give your right arm to sin less? I mean, think about your sins, right? Lust, gossip, greed, you can pick your poison here. Think about it. And, and maybe you'd even say, yeah, I'd, I'd give my right arm to stop doing that. But when we say that, we mean it about as much as we do for the donut hole and the cup of coffee, though, don't we? Almost sort of like it's, it's just kind of in passing. It's not really that big of a deal. Which makes Jesus' words this morning all the more difficult. If you've been with us at all these past couple of weeks, we've been looking at ten of Jesus' most shocking statements. Ten of the things that he said that we just sort of bristle at and think, how on earth could he possibly say this? Well, turn to Matthew 5, if you haven't already. It's in the New Testament. Just a few chapters in, Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus here in this passage, he said some pretty strong words about lust. But that's not the shocking part. The shocking part is what he tells us to do in light of such sin. Were you listening? Gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. Now that's, that's pretty jolting, isn't it? And Jesus here in this text, he is talking about the way we as his followers are to treat all sin in our life. Lust is really just the example in Matthew chapter 5. In fact, if we were to look at Matthew chapter 18, Jesus uses the exact same commands. Gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. And he's just talking about sin and temptation in general. And so this text is much broader. So while we will talk some about lust, because that is the example that Jesus gives, the text is so much broader. What Jesus is getting at ultimately is that in the face of sin, any sin, big, small, no matter what it is, any sin in our life, our mantra ought to be three words. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes, whatever it takes to fight sin, kill sin, to avoid sin in our life. Whatever it takes. If I had an arm infested with gangrene, right? And the choice was either to kill my arm or allow it, the disease, to kill me. 
I mean, I would, I would easily, sadly, but easily tell the doctor, whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes. And sin is a disease so much deadlier. Sin will take everything if you let it. Sin is just waiting to destroy us like cancer. It is eager to devour ourselves and everything around us, our relationships, everything that we have, everything that we are. And yet, will we tell the doctor whatever it takes? Kill sin or it will kill you. And yet, for most of us, myself included, we're not quite at the whatever-it-takes step because we don't really think sin is all that bad. I mean, if we're honest, right? We, th- we think more, it's not cancer. It's more like a common cold. I'm not, I'm not starving to death in some remote place in Utah. I'm just a little bit off track. We assume that sin, I mean, it's bad, yes, but it's not worth giving an arm for. We don't really think sin is that bad. And so that's where we need to begin. And so as we think through this text this morning, these difficult words of what Jesus is saying, we're going to try to answer three questions. Because really we've got to begin with this idea, what is the big deal with sin first? I mean, why would Jesus say something so extreme, so shocking, gouge out your eye, cut off your arm? What's the big deal about sin? What should we do about sin? And then third, what is my real problem? But remember, whatever it takes... So what's the big deal about sin? Now we're in Matthew 5. Again, this is uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon. Uh, And we're in this section of the Sermon on the Mount where he regularly says, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. You familiar with this at all? So right before this passage, he says, you've heard that it was said, uh, don't murder, right? And we know that. Murder, of course murder is wrong. But then Jesus says, but I tell you, don't even be angry at your brother, which is the, the, the sin behind the sin, right? It's the issue of the heart that leads to murder. And so here in verse 27 then, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Of, of course that's bad. We know that's bad. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, the problem behind adultery, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so what Jesus is doing here with, this, with those two examples and the other ones there, he is exposing the true intent of the law. That the law is, it was never meant to be just a list of rules, a list of do's and don'ts, but something that would transform and impact our hearts. It's not just murder, it's anger, because anger is what lives in our hearts. It's not just adultery, it's lust, because lust is what lives in our hearts. Are you following that? That's an important distinction as we think through. Jesus in this sermon is is speaking into our heart, not simply into our behavior. And now sin in our culture, right? I mean, it gets kind of a bad rap, doesn't it? I mean, God God is fine. Jesus, if we're not too specific, we can talk about Jesus. That's okay. But sin... I mean, sin is, sin is judgmental, sin is outdated, right? We have all these sorts of things in our, in our mind when it comes to sin because essentially what we think about sin is that it's just an arbitrary list of rules that we either obey or don't obey. It's just some sort of arbitrary set that this is good, this is bad. That's so often what we think. And increasingly in our culture, we believe the lie, and this includes us, right, in the church. We're part of our culture, um, We increasingly believe the lie that truth is something that adapts to me. 
not something that I adapt to. So I'm not, I'm not going to change for truth. Truth needs to change for me. That's, that's often how we go into it. And with that then, especially as, as Christians even, we have sort of established this idea that morality, that, that good and bad is really just about following a set of rules. But it's just, just reduced to sort of this idea of rule keeping and we so trivialize sin as a result. Essentially what we say, and maybe, maybe we say this to our kids, maybe we say this to ourselves or the people around us, essentially we say sin is bad because sin is bad. Which, I mean it's true, sin is bad, right? But it's not bad just because it's bad. It's bad because it's a relational problem. It's bad because it's against our design, how we were created to, to live and to work. It's bad because it is an experience of hell on earth. And you're not going to avoid sin if you just think it's bad. Or you're at least not going to chop your arm off. But if we actually believe that sin will destroy you, you might avoid it. You might avoid sin if you actually believe there really is a better way to live. If we really understand who it is were created for. Does this make sense so far, this kind of dis- distinction? Let me, let me break it down a little bit. This past Tuesday, um, David, my five-year-old son, caught me being a negligent father, okay? And he said I could share this. Kids, you're not the only one who occasionally has parents who ignore you, okay? It's just, we, we do that. We're sorry. We do that. And so I was, I was putting David to bed, sitting on his bed, and he was talking, right? We were having this conversation, or more of he was having a conversation. Um, and he quickly realized that I had this glazed over look. I kind of checked out. And he noticed. And so he said, Dad, Dad, what are you doing? It's like, oh, David, sorry, sorry. I mean, it woke me back up, and I said, David, I'm just, since he asked, you know, I'm thinking about my sermon. Sometimes it's, it's, it's hard to shut off, okay? And so he very graciously responded back to me. He said, well, Daddy, what's it about? I'm not sure if he's just trying to extend bedtime a little bit or what, but, you know, or if he knows that I'm just a talker. And so, so I said, well, David, you know, it's, it's about sin. Like, this is just this Tuesday, so talking about this message. Um, and then he responded that it's bad, which honestly, I mean, for a five-year-old, that's a really good place to start, right? Sin is bad, but I knew we had to go a little bit further in the conversation. So yeah, David, sin, sin is bad, but it's not just bad. Sin will, will destroy us. Every sin we commit hurts us. No, it doesn't. He said. So we kept going a little bit. Yeah, yeah, David, even if you don't realize it. And so I, I picked a random example. I picked lying. I said, David, if you lie, just one little lie, even if you never get caught for that lie, that does something to you. It hurts. Even if we don't feel it or see it right away. I mean, it, it, it damages, it hurts that relationship with God, the relationship that we were most created for. But it also hurts us in the sense that we were, just, we were created to live that way. And slowly over time, we'll become the kind of person who lies. Not just tell a lie, but we'll be that lies will live within us. And that will, that'll hurt our friendships and our families and our school and, and even work eventually. We just, we weren't created to live like that. Every sin, every lie is a slow path towards our own destruction. So what's the big deal with sin? 
Well, let me, let me break my conversation down with David um, into, into three areas, okay? First, sin isn't just a moral problem, it's a relational problem. I didn't exactly say it like that to a five-year-old, but you get the idea. Sin isn't primarily about right and wrong. It's about a broken relationship between us and our creator. Because sin, every sin, big and small, I mean, no matter what it is, our sin, when we commit it, says to God, I know better than you. I don't need you. You don't have what it takes to give me what I think I need, what I think will satisfy me, and so I'm going to find it on my own. You're not really good, God, and I'm going to go get what I need. And ultimately, I want nothing to do with you. And so lying, for example, lying, lying says to God, you don't know how to protect me, God, but I know how to protect myself by lying. Lying isn't just a misrepresentation of the truth. It is a religious conviction that says, I can save myself. I can control what people think of me and whether or not they approve of me. And that's the most important thing about me. Similarly, lust, right? That's Jesus' example here. Lust says to God, you don't know what I need to be happy. You don't know what I need to find intimacy. Lust isn't just inappropriate sexual thoughts. It is a religious conviction that says sex is God. And that as God, it demands and deserves my devotion, my worship. Because I believe this will make me happier than anything else in the world. And that, to me, is the most important thing. And every sin, you could walk through the same process. Gossip, bitterness, anger, pride, selfishness unkind words. Ultimately, it is an attack on God himself. We may not feel it, we may not see it, but that's what it is. Sin is a relational problem. If we reduce it to merely a moral problem, we won't do whatever it takes because it just seems sort of insignificant otherwise. But if it's relational, if it's between us and the very one that we were created to have a relationship, we just might do whatever it takes. Second, sin isn't just bad, it's against design. Because yes, it it destroys our relationship with our creator, and that, that ought to be enough, right? As his creatures, that should be enough to want to fight sin, to hate sin, to kill sin in our lives. But it's not just contrary to the designer, it's even contrary to our design. It doesn't fit with the way we were created to live. We weren't designed to live like this. Let's say, for example, you take a a gallon of water. Um, Nothing immoral about a gallon of water, right? And you take it over to your car. It's your car. You can do whatever you want with your car. So far, no big deal, right? But but you know in the back of your mind you're a little bit low on gas, so you decide, I'm going to figure out a way to make this gas go a little bit further, and so you pour that gallon of water into the gas tank. It's your car. You can do whatever you want. It's not really a bad thing, Right? except that it's completely contrary to the design of the car and it will ruin the car, right? I mean, water and gas, they don't mix, so the water's gonna sink to the bottom, it's gonna go right into the, into the fuel lines and it will destroy the car. The car is not gonna run. You can do that, but it's against the design of the car. Cars aren't made to run on, gas, or on, on water, they're made to run on gas, right? And sin is the same. We weren't designed to live like that. So again, Jesus' example, we're not, we weren't designed to lust. And so you can say, you know, what's the big deal, right? It doesn't really hurt anybody. Who really cares? 
Do you really believe that lie? Because lust fundamentally turns the person uh, that you desire into an object, right? That, that individual is no longer created in God's image. It is something for your satisfaction, for your selfishness. And we know, right, sex is designed to foster intimacy between a husband and wife. That's why God created it in many ways. But lust shatters intimacy. And, and lust, not only does it, does it disrupt the relationship between us and God and between us and the, and the person that we may desire, but also between us and our spouse, but even farther than that, maybe, maybe you're single, and so it's like, what's, what's the really, that's the big deal? But over time, that, that attitude, you're training yourself to see everyone of the opposite sex simply as an object. And it goes even farther, as if that's not bad enough, right? I've seen half the population as something that exists for nothing more than your own gratification, Slowly over time, you're training your brain to see everyone, every single person, as revolving around you, as as people that we can exploit and abuse and treat however we want because I deserve it, because I can take what I want, because I can go out and get it. I mean, don't, don't tell me lust is a victimless crime. That's why Jesus attacks it here. We simply were not made to live like this. And certainly we could take this one even farther, right? I mean, any, any psychologist will tell you um, the, the disastrous effects of lust and pornography. I mean, any, any will tell you, right? And we know, we know some of these other effects, relational effects. We know the, the addictive nature of it now and what it does to the brain. I re- read a recent study, actually just this past week, um, in preparation for this. It just was fascinating to me um, that there's a recent study that, that shows that looking at pornography actually damages this part of your brain that, that senses pleasure. So there's one part of your brain that does sort of pleasure and joy and happiness and satisfaction, all of these sorts of things, all in one spot. But because of of pornography, that that part, that muscle, becomes fatigued, overstimulated. And the study is finding that then normal things, sunsets, a good meal, a child's laughter, don't, don't produce the same effect anymore. They're just a little bit more bland, They've lost some of their interest. And so ultimately what the study is saying is that people who indulge in pornography often also suffer depression. And the reason I share all that is we just weren't made to live like that. I mean, even our our very body chemistry says we're we're not created for that. It's like putting water in a gas tank. And if you want to read, read more on some of these resources, some of these findings, you can go to our website. Uh, there's a whole lot listed there. And again, lying greed, gossip, bitterness. We could go through the list. Sin isn't just bad. It is against our design. We weren't made to live like this. Which means third, sin doesn't just send you to hell. Though apart from Christ, it will do that. Sin doesn't just send you to hell. It is hell. Now, I I believe hell is a real place, okay? Okay. And Jesus talked more about hell than anyone else in all of scriptures. But I don't think hell is only a place a person goes. Verse verse 29, right? That's where Jesus first mentions hell in this text. He says, For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, I'm not naive. I know that sin is fun, right? We wouldn't do it if sin wasn't fun. Of course it's fun. 
And yet, we often think because it's fun, it's harmless. When it's death, it doesn't just send us to hell. It is a taste of hell even now because sin is an undoing of our design. It's, it's an undoing of, of who we are and an undoing of our relationships. It enslaves us, it dehumanizes us, and is therefore an experience of hell in this life. If hell is, is the place where nothing is done according to God's design, if it's the place where all that is distorted and ugly lies, then sin is a piece of hell that we invite into our lives, into our world, through our actions, through our attitudes. Sin is a piece of hell that we let reign in us. And some of you, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about here. I mean, some of you are addicted to lust, and you, you know how sin enslaves. Or others of you, maybe you've, you've struggled deeply with, with substance abuse, right? These are some of the more obvious examples, but it doesn't stop here. Every sin, the path we follow is the same, and where it takes us is death, but we even taste death along the way. And the scary part is the more we taste death because of our sin, the more we sin to try to get that taste out of our mouths. It is a downward spiral that is hell and ends in hell. I mean, the next time you, you encounter your sin, again, whatever, whatever it is for you, whatever your struggle is, uh, whatever your issue, next, the next time that happens, you feel that in your body sort of welling up and you experience that and you know that you've sinned, remind yourself that just by that very act, you've invited hell into your life. That you've been given a taste of the very worst thing in the world. And if this is true, okay, if sin really is this bad, if it's as terrible as Jesus thinks it is, then the idea of sin isn't judgmental at all. And it isn't simply a collection of rights and wrongs. It is simply a description of reality. It's a picture of our world. Imagine, for, for example, a pilot flying through the Rockies at night in a dense fog. Can't see the landscape around him. Okay? And so somebody calls in on the radio and says, you know, you are about to fly into a mountain. You need to change your course. I mean, what pilot at that moment would say, yeah, we'll see. It's my plane. Don't judge me. You know, I can do whatever I want. You know, the mountain's going to move out of my way. You know, there's not going to be any, any consequence by, by going. No pilot would possibly say that because any pilot knows that a mountain or truth or reality uh, is, is not something that, that adapts to us. It's something we adapt to. And so, of course, that pilot is going to change his course to save his life. And Jesus here, Jesus' understanding of sin is that there is a spiritual landscape in our world. Things that we cannot necessarily see or completely understand. And yet, if we ignore it, we do so at our own peril. If you don't pay attention to the landscape around you, the warnings that he has established, we do so at our own destruction. There is a spiritual landscape of our world. Michael Ramsden says that that we don't break God's laws. We can't break God's laws, he says. But we break ourselves on his laws. That's what happens when we sin. Okay, so when I was sitting on on David's bed, I just gave him the 30-second version. You got the longer version. Sorry about that. Some of you are wishing for the 30-second version. Um, 
But as I was doing this, right, so picture us now again, David and I talking through these things. And I, as I describe more and more kind of the, who we become if we become the kind of person who lies or who sins, I could, I could sort of see the fear beginning to well up on his face. And I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't trying to scare him, but it was as if for the first time he was beginning to understand what sin is and what it does. And with his eyes, I could see him pleading for a way out. I wish I responded to my sin with such tenderness. Because I could see him asking the question, what do we do? And he even said, Daddy, I, I don't want to sin. How do I stop? That's the question, right? Well, hopefully it's a little bit obvious by now, at least the easy answer. We've said it a few times. What do we do about sin? Three words. Whatever it takes, right? Whatever it takes. I mean, that's, that's the easy answer, okay? And so we'll talk about the an- easy answer, and then we'll, we'll try to figure out what that actually looks like here. But whatever it takes. I mean, if this is what sin is and does, then there should be nothing we wouldn't do to run from it, destroy it, to fight it, to kill it in our lives before it kills us. There should be nothing we wouldn't do. If, that's actually, if sin is actually inviting hell into our lives, destroying us and destroying our relationship with God, there should be nothing we wouldn't do. And only when we understand that do Jesus' words begin to make a little bit of sense, right? Verse 29. He says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, just to set you all at ease for a moment here, we didn't bring any knives to church, okay? And and judging by the fact that it seems as if everyone here has two eyes and two hands, um, we understand that this isn't something we take literally, right? That Jesus is using hyperbole to get our attention, that Jesus is trying to make a point. And we know that, okay? We don't just pick and choose, right, what we think Jesus is, is speaking literally. We know that because what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is going at the heart, Right? And Jesus knows that you could have a bunch of eyeless, handless people who still are enslaved to lust, can't you? That that's not actually going to fully, completely fix the problem. But Jesus' point is still the same. Whatever it takes. That is, if we look at our sin, right, our sins, knowing how serious they are, our attitude ought to be whatever it takes. I once, once heard a pastor, it was probably about 15 years ago, and I, it still sort of haunts me. He was explaining this text, and what does this look like in our, in our lives, in our world today? And he said that it means, for example, that if you think you might have an affair with your neighbor, you should sell your house, quit your job, and move across the country. Better to start your life over again than walk that path. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. And so for, for some of you, Maybe a smartphone is a really dumb idea, right? Because of what you can access on there. Or, or maybe you don't really need a laptop or, or a TV. It's better to have a really lame phone than be enslaved to sin. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Maybe lust isn't your thing, but you have that group of friends that whenever you are with them, you cannot help but trash talk your husband. Or begin gossiping. Better to have fewer friends than end up in hell. Whatever it takes. 
Whatever it takes. Maybe, maybe it's, it's power and greed and, and the job you have just fosters a lust for more. Maybe you need to quit your job. I mean, better to make a lousy income than end up a slave. Whatever it takes. Students, it's better to fail your test than cheat. It's better to be treated poorly for doing the right thing than just, just simply fitting in all the time. Kids, it's, it's better to share your toy than to just keep fighting over and over and over again. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. But listen, that still isn't enough. And many of you know this, right? You've taken all these steps. You've done all these things. You've, you've done everything you possibly can think of, and yet you still keep sinning. Because even though we've spent the majority of our time talking about sin, sin really isn't our biggest problem, at least to some extent. Because remember what I said at the start, right, with the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus isn't just talking about rules and giving us more rules to follow. He is exposing the heart of the matter and who we are as individuals and our tendency to go after sin no matter what. And so if, if all you do from this sermon this morning is you sort of renew your de- determination to, to fight against sin, to do whatever it takes, and you leave it there, it's still not enough. So what is your real problem? You are. You are your real problem. I am my real problem. My heart is my problem. My problem is not that I do bad things. As bad as that is, that's not my problem. My problem is that I love doing bad things. I like them. I run to them. I find my, my, my security and my satisfaction in them instead of where I should. And so Jesus isn't just saying here, you know what, you really need to stop lusting. He's saying, become the kind of person that doesn't worship sex, that doesn't put all of your energy into this one area, that doesn't objectify people. He's not just saying, stop lying, love the truth, not just stop sinning. Become the kind of person for whom sin no longer holds the same kind of appeal. Change everything, he's saying. So now that I have you thoroughly confused and frustrated, let's, let's recap for a second, just to make sure we all know where we're at. I know this is kind of a complicated message. Okay, so we said so far, sin isn't a moral problem, it's a relational problem. Uh, it's against the designer, right, and our design. That sin is a little slice of hell, and so as a result, what do we do about it? Whatever it takes. But it's going to take so much more than a severed arm or a whole bunch of new rules in order to do this. So here's what it's going to take. First, you can't just avoid sin, you've got to hate it. You can't just avoid sin, you've got to hate it. And so many of us, when we look at our sin, you might hate the consequences. You might hate the way it makes you feel, or the way, way it makes your spouse feel, or your friend. You might hate the way that might damage your reputation, or, or what happens if you get caught. But you don't hate your sin. If you only hate the consequences, you're not going to change, because you don't want to change. All you want to change are the consequences. And you're not going to change based simply on the consequences. Only when we begin to understand what sin really is, what it does to this, what it does to all of our relationships, that it is a taste of hell, only then when we remind ourselves constantly of the death that lives within every sin, only then do we even possibly understand the pathway to change. You cannot just avoid sin. You've got to hate it. Second, you can't just try hard. You've got to train hard. 
We talk, we talk about this from time to time, don't we? So often our, our treatment of sin, and maybe some of you, even if you sat here uh, this morning, you're thinking, yeah, I'm not going to do that again. You're right. Boy, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to do that again. I'm just going to try really hard. And we go out and we do it, right? It's going to last about 10 minutes. It's, just, it's not just about trying harder. We've got to train better. We've got to, we've got to prepare ourselves to be able to fight sin, to kill sin, even if you're not particularly struggling with uh, an issue of sin right now. You will. So prepare yourself for that. Things like solitude and Bible study and prayer and fasting and confession and accountability and, and for some of us, counseling, additional resources, right? But so often we come to our, our sin as if we're this, this person who decides, you know, the night before a marathon that he's not only going to run the race the next day, he's going to win. Simply because he's going to try really, really hard. It's not going to happen, Right? You can't just try hard, you've got to train hard. And finally, and most importantly, most importantly, you can't just tweak your heart, you need a new one. You can't just improve it, you can't just, you know, dust, dust off the edges from, now, from time to time to try to fix a few things while other things start creeping up. You cannot just tweak your heart, you need a new one. And so David and I, as we, as we often do, after this conversation, we pray together. We said, God, forgive us, both of us, and help both of us to love you more than sin, to pursue you more than sin, that that those things wouldn't have the same kind of effect on us anymore, to obey you. And we know that for those who are in Christ, we're given a new heart, new passions, new motivations, new strength, and that God, by his Holy Spirit, lives within us, and that we, we can live this life. And essentially, that's the cross, I mean, what will it take to free us from sin? I mean, what will it take to give us the life that we are desperate for? I mean, if you can picture the scene, right? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is praying to his Father, there's got to be another way. I mean, he's not exactly at that point really eager to go to the cross, right? He knows the pain and the suffering. It's, God, is there another way? And yet Jesus Christ, he looked at our sin, knowing the death, the pain, the hellishness that it is, he looked at his incredible love for us and Jesus said, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. And he went to that cross. He didn't just just give up an arm, right? He gave up his life and he himself experienced hell in that moment so that those who trust in him, who follow him, never have to. And that we can actually live the kind of life that he describes, a life of freedom and joy and of actually seeing progress in our lives, of change and growth. But sin, sin has lost its power. Death has lost its sting. And we know that. We celebrate that. And yet we still feel so inadequate, don't we? I mean, I know how far I have yet to go. But I love, how, I love how George MacDonald puts it. He's a, an old, old writer from way back when. Um, he describes this scene that, that every father, right, every parent loves and celebrates seeing their child walk for the first time, right? I mean, get out the, the camcorder and you're cheering them on and you know that those are the worst steps that person's ever going to take in their entire life. I mean, they're like a tiny little drunken sailor, aren't they? I mean, it's just, it's pathetic. It's terrible. And yet it pleases every parent in that moment. But no parent for a second would be satisfied with that. Because that's not walking, right? 
That's the beginning. That's the first step of walking, that there is still a long road for that child in learning how to actually walk. Parents may be pleased, but they're not satisfied. And I love what McDonald says. He says, God is easy to please, but hard to satisfy. I love that. God is so easily pleased with us in Christ as we seek to follow him, even our most feeble efforts, like a father, right? He cheers us along, video camera in hand, full well knowing that we're probably going to fall in about two and a half steps, and yet he keeps cheering. But he's not satisfied. And when we, when we fall, he picks us back up, looks us dead in the eyes and says, son, daughter, let's keep going. Let's, let's go for three steps this time. Let's go for four steps this time. God is easy to please, but he's hard to satisfy. And so when your sin, when my sin, rears its ugly head yet again, do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes, but know that he has already done what it takes on our behalf. And that we can experience that joy and freedom. And knowing this beautiful truth, there is delight in each and every step.